Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 376th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a legendary Welsh actor who has been doing great work on the stage, small screen, and big screen for more than a half century. Racking up along the way, one Oscar, two Emmys, and three BAFTA awards, as well as career achievement honors like the Hollywood Foreign Press Association's Cecil B. DeMille Award at the 2006 Golden Globe Awards, and the British Academy of Film and Television Arts' BAFTA Fellowship at the 2008 BAFTA Awards, Sir Anthony Hopkins. Hopkins is best known for his excellent performances in numerous films, among them 1968's The Lion in Winter, 1978's Magic, 1980's The Elephant Man, 1992's Chaplin and Howard's End, 1993's The Remains of the Day and Shadowlands, 1995's Nixon, 1997's Amistad, 2005's Proof, 2019's The Two Popes, and most famously, Jonathan Demme's 1991 horror film, The Silence of the Lambs, for which his portrayal of imprisoned serial killer Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter was recognized with Academy, BAFTA, New York Film Critics Circle, and National Board of Review Awards. The haunting character, which he later reprised in Ridley Scott's 2001 sequel Hannibal and Brett Ratner's 2002 prequel Red Dragon, was chosen in a 2003 American Film Institute survey as the greatest screen villain of all time. In the film, which premiered at Sundance in January 2020, opened in select New York and L.A. theaters this weekend, will expand to more theaters on March 12th, and will become available for streaming on March 26th, Hopkins plays a man, also named Anthony, who is descending into dementia. Hopkins delivers, in the words of the critic who reviewed the film for the New York Times, quote, an astonishing, devilish performance, close quote, that gave her, quote, actual chills, close quote. And it has brought Hopkins, at the age of 83, pending nominations for Golden Globe, SAG, and Critics' Choice Awards, with Oscar and BAFTA Award nominations almost certain to follow. Over the course of our conversation, Hopkins, who rarely grants interviews, opened up about his accidental path to acting and the early breaks he was given by Sir Laurence Olivier, a major turning point in his life in 1973 when he walked away from the stage and wound up on the screen, what paved the way for his later-than-usual ascendance to stardom via The Silence of the Lambs exactly 30 years ago, and how it shaped the career that he has had since right through The Father, plus much more. 
And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sir Anthony, thank you so much for joining us on the Hollywood Reporters podcast. It's an honor to have you. Tony, you don't have to that. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, on this one, just for. A generic opening question that we always do in case our listeners don't know. Can you just share where you were born and raised and what your parents did for a living? Oh, I was raised in um, a place called Port Talbot, Port, uh, South Wales. My father was a baker. So reading as much as I, I could about you from stuff over the years to prepare for this, I was uh, surprised to to hear about how kind of demeaning some of your teachers were when you were in school. And I wonder just uh, what that must have been like and if that sort of drove you to prove people wrong. <laughs> uh, it's all water under the bridge, you know. They did what they had to do. I, I'd forgotten all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't very bright at school and I became an actor. And uh, I, I've arrived at this point in my life and I don't even, can't even take credit for it because it's um, beyond me. I... Uh, I don't know why I became an actor. I have no idea. And I mean that. And recently it's come to my consciousness that I have no idea what the hell I'm doing here. <laughs> I, I'm, I've got a kind of indifference to it all because I started off as a kid, not very bright, you know. I was not, uh, you know, I was not very bright. And, you know, naturally school teachers in those days uh, were impatient with kids. Uh, and so to my surprise and Surprise of many people, school teachers particularly, I became very successful. Uh, I was the lowest candidate to have become anything. I don't understand any of it. I don't understand what life is. All I know is I look back over my life and I think, good God, how, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> but I can look back now with total, I don't know if the right word is indifference, mm-hmm. a total kind of, um, total... Mystification. I, I don't know how the hell I got here. <laughs> nor, <laughs> nor do I give it any much thought. I'm very lucky. I've had a great life, but uh, <laughs> you know. Well, is it true that even before acting really entered the picture, uh, if you could have done anything, it seems like music might have been the path, right? Well, yeah, but I didn't have the technique or the patience to become a musician. But I played the piano, and uh, I was quite good. You know, I technically. Uh, sort of okay. Um, but I just wandered into this business by accident at the age of 17. I got a scholarship to uh, Cardiff College of Music and Drama. And um, that was 1955. Hmm. And then left in, uh, so and I, I had no idea how 
I mean, there was an audition advertised in the local paper and I applied for it and I, I learned a piece of Shakespeare. I'd, I'd never read Shakespeare, but I learned a bit of it. And um, <laughs> I got a scholarship. God knows how, even, I have no idea how any of this happened. Uh, I left in 1957 and then within 10 years of leaving, I was at the National Theatre and just living Lawrence Olivia. So, you know, to me, it's a complete... <laughs> I, I have no idea how any of it worked out and, you know, well, the idea, though, of even pursuing a scholarship or, or, or schooling and acting, that really, I guess, traced back to the other well-known person to come out of your little town, right? That sort of planted the seed that Richard Burden was someone that you knew of? Yeah, I went and asked him for his autograph once. <laughs> I was about 15, and uh, I remember he gave me his autograph, and he and his ex-wife, um, Sybil were in, he was staying with his sister, you know, I've been not far from my father's shop in Taibach, Port Albert. And uh, so I went up to Narsen Resort. <laughs> and as I was walking down the hill, he and his wife were driving in a Jaguar car to go to Cardiff to see the big rugby international. It was a Saturday, obviously. And I thought, God, I'd love to be like that, you know. I, and all, the, all those things happened to me, and I look back on earth and well, did it make me grow any taller? Did it add anything... You know, am I uh, am I a better person? I've no idea. But all those things that happened, I suppose I dreamed of and wanted to become. And of course, now that you know, life sets in, and I'm now 83 years of age. <laughs> and I look back, I think, how the hell did this happen? So I, <laughs> I, I've got to have a sense of humour, but I can't take. I mean, I promise you that I cannot take any of this seriously. I mean, I cannot. I used to, I used to, I'll be honest, I used to when I was younger, but now I look back and it's all a big game to me. <laughs> well, one of the things that you had said in a, in a long ago interview was that it wasn't even the idea of acting like Richard Burton that was the appeal. It was the idea of being famous. Why do you think you wanted to be famous? Just again, to sort of uh, show the, the doubters, maybe? I suppose that, that is, that is, it is, isn't it? I suppose most people want to be successful in their lives or I don't know what their motives of revenge. I don't know. It's um, maybe because I've felt inadequate as a kid. No, I, I just, yeah, I wanted to become something. I but, you know, looking back, I, I'm not, my memory is so vague, but I don't mean I'm losing my memory, but right. my, I'm 83, but I look back at it all and it's all like a kind of, it's a bit of a dream. So you mentioned that, you know, from starting at, I guess, the YMCA at 17 to just a few years later, you're you're auditioning for the National Theater in front of Olivier doing something from Othello that he was actually he was actually in at the time. Yeah. I just wonder, was that intimidating for I must have been right. Well, in those days, I was young, I was brash, you know, I didn't give a shit about anything. <laughs> I was scared probably. You know, when you're younger, you you you're arrogant and do you think you can do anything? But I was a bit nervous of meeting him and uh, he was doing Othello. He was playing Othello. So anyway, I got up and did my piece. And uh, he said, well, so what are you going to do next? I said, Othello. He said, you've got a nerve, haven't you? <laughs> so I did the audition. He said, it's very good. He said, I don't think I'll lose any sleep tonight, but he said, you're very good. So anyway, a, a few months later, a few weeks later, I, I got a call to joined the National United, and that was it. And in fact, isn't it the case that really maybe the the 
biggest break for you while you were there was filling in for him when he wasn't able to do the dance of death one night. Yeah, well, he'd given me a, a part in uh, Chekhov's Three Sisters, uh, which he directed. I played the part of Andre, the brother of the Three Sisters, with Joan Plowright and anyway, so, and the Robert Sings. And uh, he gave me that part because I know he seemed to like me. He thought I was pretty good. He thought I was very strong. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. And I was always pretty prepared. You know, I always knew my lines and all that. But then uh, he, one day I was uh, given a phone call and there was the stage manager, Diana Boddington. She said, Lawrence has gone into hospital. You've got to come in for rehearsal. I said, you're kidding me, because I'd been understudying it. Fortunately, I'd learned all my lines. I you know that's my only virtue, I think, is that I was very disciplined about learning the text. Very disciplined about that. I think that's a compensation thing to make up for my seeming lack of intelligence. So I went into the rehearsal and uh, started the rehearsal and it seemed to go well. It seemed to go very well. And I was on that night. I did four performances. And I thought, God almighty. I remember one on the first night I stood there, I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm going to call it. I'm going to say, go home, get your money back. <laughs> and I remember two boys' soundtracks going in my head. This is crazy. But I got through and I got a standing ovation. And the next morning I got a call from Olivia and uh, he said, um, he came out of the hospital, the local hospital, St. Thomas's Hospital, in his bathrobe, the hat and all that, and stood at the back of the auditorium and watched me. He said, well done. And that was it. Yeah. And then I, then I, um, but within that, within that very short period of time, 1967, I got a call uh, from Peter O'Toole to uh, do a film test for The Lion in Winter with Catherine Nevin. So that, to me, is very odd, very strange in the mystery because only 10 years before I'd left the um, Cardiff College of Music and Drama. And in that period, from 1958 to 60, I'd been in national service. Then I went to the Royal Academy. So that was four years out of a decade. But within six years, something extraordinary happened. But me, I couldn't have designed that. There's nothing to do with me. There's something that is inexplicable about life. We, none of us know what the hell we're doing, really. We all think we know everything. We know nothing. <laughs> well, so I, I wondered, you know, at RADA... I can't imagine they were teaching very much in terms of screen acting. So all of a sudden you're on the, you're on the set of, uh, the Lion in winter, I think in, in France, I believe. Uh-huh. And did you feel like you were out of your depth or did you kind of acclimate quickly? I had it in my nature to, well, I was always in a state of wonder. I mean, I, I don't seen Peter O'Toole in a play at the Bristol old Vic in 1957. So it was 10 years before in, John Osborne's look back in anger, and he was electrifying. So there I was, in meeting him in his office in um, in uh, Chelsea, I think it was. There were two other actors there, and uh, then I did the film test with him, and he gave me the part. He said, I want you to play the part. So uh, I, I don't think there's much going on in my head. I just learned the lines, showed up, and did it. And I was pretty strong, you know, physically strong. I was born that way. You know, I was like a Welsh rugby player. And O'Toole sort of like that, you know, and I a good voice and uh, I knew what I was doing I I knew that it took confidence and I had that confidence because you know if you're nervous and you keep putting yourself down and you think well you can't that's vanity you have to be confident you have to know what you're doing you can't wing it you can't just say well I you know you can't be cool you got to know yourself and if you don't know yourself you're dead and you know People use earphones and all that because they can't learn their lines. So they're too lazy. Well, I mean, maybe they've got a reason for it. I don't know. 
But I can't do that because I, my 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 uh, enjoyment is uh, uh, improving my brain, learning the text, and uh, and doing it. But you have to be confident. You can't be uh, timid, and that's one thing I'm not. I'm not timid. But then then the, the peculiar dichotomy is I'm not timid, but I'm indifferent to it all. I'm just. I, I look back over it and think, what the hell was that all about? Which gives me a great freedom because I realize that, you know, we're nothing. We're not, we're not important. All we think we are, we're not. It's vast unison. So I did read that you're standing there with Catherine Hepburn, and essentially she's basically telling you that the art of screen acting is to do... She's do nothing. Nothing, right? <laughs> no, nothing. Don't do anything. Just stand and speak the lines. <laughs> oh, concentration in Bogart, they knew how to do it. And, uh, O'Toole was the same. O'Toole was great. He was great to work with. We both, uh, yeah, we, he was he was terrific. And uh, he was known by O'Toole. He was a great hero of mine because he he really he was crazy, but he was he was a great actor. And he he knew his stuff. You know, he really delivered. And he was scary because he had such power and force. And as so many of you know, great American actors have, like De Niro, people like that. But those are the unique ones, you know, yeah. the ones that stand above everyone else because they are powerful in their knowledge and their confidence. They don't take prisoners, you know. People should know that it wasn't like right after Lion in Winter, you were suddenly exclusively acting in film. It was actually back to the theater for several years until what seems like it must have been a uh, defining kind of turning point in your life. 1973, you're in Macbeth at the National, and you've just sort of reached your breaking point, and in the middle of the run, you check out. Uh, what was going through your mind at the time? Did you worry that this was going to destroy your career? In the end, it actually led to a lot of good things. Well, you're the first, yeah, yeah, very. That's that's true. I I I left because I was a bad boy. I <laughs> I just couldn't fit in. I just thought, oh, screw this. And um, I was, a, you know, and I I was, yeah, I, I wasn't a good team player, and I used to hang around and and, but I was always on my own. I was so I was a bit of a loner, and um, I'd had enough of this production I was in, and uh, things had kept going wrong, and I was. Um, and one day I said, that's it. And I left. And um, I was during the rehearsal of uh, the Misanthrope by Moliere. And uh, there was a particular director who was a brilliant director, but he was pretty savage. And one day I said, screw you. And I left. And I thought, and I was warned I'd never work again. I said, I don't care. And that's been my attitude all my life. I, think, <laughs> I remember my, told my agent, and he said, you're crazy, you'll never work again. I said, you know, I don't give a shit. I really <laughs> I don't care because I don't want to be. I'm not. I was in the army. I was, I was being screamed at by you know sergeants. I'm not going to come in this business to be made uncomfortable by some creep. <laughs> the director turned out to be a great director, but um, so I remember walking across Green Park and the beautiful January morning, and I thought, and I could hear all the buses and taxis and beyond you know, going by, and thought, I'm free. I don't ever have to work again. Within a few months, I was in. Israel with Leslie Caron, Ben Gazzara, Leah Remick doing a, an amazing ABC uh, series called QB7. Yes. And, uh, I was sitting on a camel, I remember that. Like, actually, <laughs> I'm the National Theatre in that, cooped up in that little dressing room, and <laughs> in the Judean mountains, riding on a camel. 
Leslie Carroll, and then with uh, Ben Gazzara and Lee Remick and Jack Hawkins, all these people. And I thought, what the hell happened to me? And there were people, and I was playing a big lead, and I, there, was, there was a wonderful actor, British actor, great actor, big star called Jack Hawkins. Mm-hmm. He was playing the judge, and I remember he... Um, I couldn't believe I was, you know, I'd seen him 20 years before then in films. And he was such a nice guy, you know, and uh, I actually looped his voice because he had um, uh, tracheotomy and uh, he was about to go to New York to get an operation, unfortunately. But um, they'd, they'd, um, so I I looped his voice over here in Hollywood. I came over to do a film with Goldie Horn and I saw the QB7, the final print, and Rene Valente said, what do you think? I said, yeah, but I said, who, who directed, who looked, who did Jack's voice? She saw, she's an American actor. I said, but it sounds awful. It sounds like a mock English accent. I said, look, I, I'll tell you what, let me do it. So they wow. paid my extra hotel and I said, um, I was about to go back to Britain. And I spent two days over in, um, at ABC, I think it was yeah, one of the studios. And I knew how to loop the phone, you know. And, yeah. And he had a particular voice. And um, so, and his his mouth, you know, as he spoke, his mouth was distorted because he again, so, so Adam, your question next, please answer. <laughs> but I got it. And I saw yeah, it. Yeah. Oh, it was not bad. <laughs> I remember meeting Jack's widow and she said, thank you so much for that. And he was such a lovely man, you know. And mm. all these I think I remember him from uh, Bridge on the River Kwai, among other things. Yeah. So the, the director who you'd quarreled with that led you to leave at the National, I believe, was John Dexter. And the greatest irony of all is that when you get to the States, who's the first director who you work with on John. the theater? John. <laughs> John, John, John came out. To, I was working with Goldie Hawn on the film. I was in Vienna, and uh, I got a phone call that John Dexter was coming to see me. I thought he was coming to arrest me. <laughs> so, yeah, I, so he came, I met him at the opera tavern. I was in place near the opera house, and uh, John was still the irascible John. I said, he said, so why do you leave? And I said, because you, because uh, you shouted at me and screamed at me. He said, now listen, he said, you're a much better actor than you think you are. So I want you to do Equus in New York. And we became friends. I mean, he was still pretty tough, but we became friends. And I, I met him, I saw him just last few days um, of a production I did in London. I worked with him twice. And he was um, he was very ill then. And uh, that was the last time I saw him. It was 1989. I was about to go off and make silence on the Amazon. Um, I saw him and he looked sad and, I felt sorry for him and I give him a hug and all that. He died a few months later. But I, mm. I remember that. And uh, but he was, you know, so these peculiar decisions we make in our lives don't make any sense at all. I thought when I left the National, I'd never work again. But I, I that's the way I did it. And that's yeah. destiny. I missed the score. Well, the, you know, as you arrive in the US, as I look back at the, the credits from that period, QB7 in 1974. The Lindbergh kidnapping case on TV movie win an Emmy, playing the the kidnapper of the Lindbergh baby in '76. Hitler in the bunker in a TV movie in '81, another Emmy. This was you were you were working at a high level. It seems like largely on TV at that point. I guess the first in terms of the big screen after the Lion in Winter. It seems like an important person would have been Richard Attenborough, who I think you worked with more than any other director if i if i have it right 
Young Winston in 72, A Bridge Too Far in 77, Magic in 78, Chaplin in 92, Shadowlands in 93. Um, why do you think you two hit it off? Was it that he had also been an actor himself or, or why was so? It? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I remember reading in the paper I was cast as David Lloyd George in Young Winston. I didn't even know the man. I'd never met him. I mean, never met Edinburgh. And I got a call from him. He said, what could we meet? I said, I said, you, he said, yes, I want you to do it. I said, well, I read it before you told me in the evening seven. So he said, would you do it? I said, yeah, of course. And um, did the, and then uh, I was in New York and he wanted me to be in Bridge Too Far with this amazing cast of people. And uh, I was in New York doing Equus at the time. And uh, I went off in 76. Like, God, oh my, that's 45 years ago. Uh, to Holland, and we started, and that was great. There's Olivia Hebes out there, and it's an amazing cast, like Sean Connery. Um, oh, God, they're all there. Um, Robert Redford, and, uh, and uh, Attenborough was directing. And uh, from then on, we did Magic. And after Magic, I think, what's it? Um, Chaplin and Shadowlands, yeah. yeah. But he was somebody that you just really clicked with as a collaborator. Oh, he was a very nice man. He was a very good man. Yeah. And he was, you know, a good, solid director. He'd been in the movie business all this, well, ever since he was a kid. But he'd always, according to a friend of his, Brian Forbes, always been interested in the machinations of uh, McAnally or whatever it is, in the organization of them. And he was always hanging around the production office when he was a young actor. And he was figuring out how to become, then he did, Gandhi was his first film, I think. No, it was his second film. But um, yeah, he was always interested in it. And uh, he was one of the most pleasant men you could work with. Um, very, uh, very joking, full of fun. And uh, and it made, it made it very pleasant to be with all the time. And, uh, I had a great time. Is there any truth to the, uh, I had read that he may have actually floated the idea of you starring in Gandhi? <laughs> what did you think of that? I thought you were insane. I said, me? <laughs> My father said to me, he said, what is the comedy? I told him, he said, what is the comedy? <laughs> I said, uh, I, I stuck with this idea for, for some years and um, and he, and one day I had to phone him. I said, I can't do this. Look at me. I'm built like a rugby scrum. And, uh, <laughs> so, you know, of course he got the brilliant Ben Kingsley. But it was an odd thing that he would, and he couldn't <laughs> politically, he couldn't do that. Today. But how he did no. that, I had no idea. But I, I didn't know why I didn't choose Ben, first of all, because Ben was perfect. So why he spent those years talking to me about it, I don't know. So right through the father, it seems like you have had a openness to working with very young, newish directors. And I think that an early example of that would be The Elephant Man with David Lynch, who had only made Eraserhead at that point. Um, what for you gave you the confidence that this was something worth doing when it was a guy who wasn't really that widely known? Oh, he, was, he was a unique uh, director. I mean, he was a a real original, and uh, so uh, I didn't know, I can't remember how, how they gave me that, but it was Mel Brooks directed and produced it. And uh, for some reason they chose me to do it, and uh, I'd never worked with John Hurt before. I'd, I'd known him briefly, but never didn't really know. When we started, and um, yeah, David Lynch was a unique uh, kind of genius, I think he was, uh, um, he had a very odd way of directing. He used to do lots of takes. I never knew quite what he was talking about because he would 
because he, he was another brain sort of, he was into meditation and all that. He was a very nice guy. I wasn't very well behaved on that because I was, I, I, I'm not very good at doing 15 takes, you know, and, uh, but, but we, it was okay. And I, I saw the film recently, about two years ago, I think, very, and I'm a great admirer of his when he did a film with Dennis Hopper. And uh, do oh yeah, blue velvet yeah. Mulholland Drive and uh, yeah. No, he's a he's a one-off. There's there's no other David Lynch. He's a one-off. I mean, right. Mulholland Drive is an extraordinary film. And uh, the the one with Dennis, uh, what was it called? Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet, yeah. And actually, didn't one of the films that you directed? I think maybe it was Slipstream. There was some sense that it was influenced by David. Yeah, it was. Well, it was. well I wrote that in a month. I, I, I just wanted to write a stream of consciousness. And I sat one day and I started writing it and I didn't know where it was going. And I ended up and I didn't know what it was about. It was based actually on an experience I'd had when I'd had a concussion. I'd, um, I'd had an, uh, I was up in Canada and I had a memory loss through hypothermia. It was the most weird experience of ever of time switching around and I didn't know where I was in the past or the future and I was told by a doctor he said well that's what happens when you get a lapse of memory the brain plays all kinds of tricks and it was such a weird and disturbing experience it only lasted about a day I think I was in Canmore Hospital just I was suffering from hypothermia but it was such a weird experience it was all out of the almost out of body experience and um, I didn't know who anyone was and I thought and uh the same thing happened to me in Mexico. I was doing a scene in Zorro and trying to break out of a cage or something. And I had the same thing. And the doctor told me, he said, you know, you shouldn't push your brain that far because, you know, you're up in these, up in the heights of little oxygen in the mountains in Mexico. So, so take it easy. So I did. I did. But um, that's what I do. And I think uh, tiredness, overworking can have an effect on you. And I've always been a workaholic. But anyway, that's what happened to me. And so that's why I wrote Slipstream. Well, I wonder if those experiences might have been something you drew upon when you did The Father, because it's sort of a disorienting, obviously, thing to, to play with, to play someone with dementia as well. Well, yes, it is. Because in those moments that I had in my own mind, um, they were scary. They were, caused a lot of anxiety. I thought, oh, I wonder if I'll... And the doctor just had to rest. And within 24 hours, I was back to normal. Um, but it was an odd feeling. It wasn't terrifying, but I thought, God, I hope I can come out of this. And uh, with the father, it was much simpler because um, the script is so well written. Uh, Florian had created this series of plays, the father, the mother, and the son. And, the, you know, the three different plays played in New York and all over the mm -hmm. world. And then he got this wonderful screenplay writer, Christopher Hampton, who I'd worked with before, several, three times, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, you see, people ask me, many interviews say, so how did you get prepared? Well, I just learned the lines. <laughs> it's that simple, because once, I, but I don't have any theories about acting, so I don't even know why I'm an actor. But the funny thing is that once you, um, once you get a good screenplay, a good text, you don't need to mess with it. You may change a word here and there for the future, but it's like following a roadmap. So there was no strain, no effort, and I'd go into the studio in the morning, or little tiny studio in London, and I'd meet Sir Olivia Coleman, a wonderful actress, and uh, the rest of the cast were wonderful. Yeah. And Florian, this was his first film. 
So for me, it was, um, as they say, you know, walk in the park, it was dead easy, really. It was yeah. no, no big deal. Well, I'm going to come back and ask you more, of course, about The Father, which I had actually been lucky enough to see on Broadway. So it was quite interesting to see the ways that that you guys approached it. On You saw it on Broadway? Yes, yes. It was uh, really interesting to then see how it was uh, how it was tailored for the screen. But before I, I want to kind of stick to the chronology for a moment, though, if I can, because you went back to England, having kind of fled with Macbeth in 73, 74. A decade later, you went back. Why did you decide to give it a second chance that only was interrupted, I guess, eventually when Silence of the Lambs came about? Well, uh, I was living out here. I enjoyed it. I loved living out here. And then gradually things began to dry up. And um, I was with an agency who was now a famous uh, uh, producer. And he was my agent for a while, I won't mention him. But uh, I said, I'm going back to England. I said, uh, listen, thank you for being my agent. He said, that's okay. I said, I'm going back to England because I've been offered. I was doing The Bounty in 1980. Mm-hmm. And I think I was offered a play called Pravda by David mm-hmm. Ayer. And so uh, I, I went back to England and uh, I thought, well, maybe I'll go back to England and stay there. I didn't know what was going And I'd, I'd never been back. I hadn't been in the theatre for many years. And I went back um, to do Pravda and a few other films. Like, I can't remember, Married Man or something like that. But anyway, uh, Pravda was the thing. And David Hare was the director. He wrote it. Howard Brenton, he was the director. Most brilliant director. Um, David Hare was. He is. Um, but he, he sometimes directs films. But it was about the height of my life because it was such fun. It was such, so much fun playing a monster tycoon, uh, uh, you know, a press baron right. called Lambert Leroux. But it was a wonderful part. And David was the best. And uh, then I did King Lear with him. My, uh, David's production was great, but I wasn't too... I was a bit, I was too young. I was in my 40s. And you yeah. can do it at the point you can. You have to wait until you're 83. So I, I was 80 when I did Lear again. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I knew more about life, I guess. But David was a wonderful director. And then I, what happened? I think after that, I did a play, did several plays and television things. Oh, my God, I kind of forgot. Well, I think uh, Butterfly, right? M, M. Butterfly? Butterfly yeah. in New York, uh, in London. And Butterfly. and um, Lynn Farley and I can't remember anyway I was in doing Butterfly 1989 and a call came through from my agent he said send me a script called uh, The Silence of the Lambs and I thought it was a kid's story <laughs> I was sitting in my dressing room you know and it was a hot summer afternoon so I read it and I phoned my guy I said I, is this an offer he said I'm not sure yet I said I don't want to read anymore because he said why I said because this part is the best part I've ever read it's not a very big part. I said, I don't care. I don't want to read it, but it is. So later he finally said, Jonathan Demme is coming to see you tomorrow on Saturday night. So Jonathan came to see the play that night, the Saturday night. And I said, this is an offer. And yeah. And within a few weeks, my contract was up and I left and came over to New York and we had a reading with Jodie Foster at the Orion offices in New York. And I knew how to play that. Like, I just knew it. I don't know how, but I knew it. And it creeped them out a bit. So I, I was a little bit unsure of that. I, I was confident, but I thought, well, I'm not an American actor. And um, 
I sort of be a couple of raised eyebrows, not that anyone gives a hoot about it. Nobody's just, we think that people think about this. Nobody's giving us a hoot about us. <laughs> but uh, I remember sitting in the office at the round table reading, and uh, there was a reaction from my voice and all the people said, oh my God. And then <laughs> I, we started the film in Pittsburgh about some months later. And uh, that was it. And uh, so when I arrived, on, I knew exactly what to do. You know, that's again, it takes confidence to know that. Well, let me just ask you, do you know what it was that made Jonathan even think of you at a time when you you felt that the industry had almost sort of, the American industry had sort of forgotten you, I guess. That's why you went back to England. So what well, was it that? It's natural. You know, I'm, not an, I'm not an American-born actor. And of course, the movie, the American film industry is different to the British film industry. You know, it's different. They, and I'm, you know, I suppose I was cast in that mold of the upright British gentleman, so not that I'm any of that. But until uh, I understood that, that's why I went back to England. And I, I thought I'd love to come back to America. But I had little notion that it would happen that way. And um, I knew, I knew that Silence and Lambs would be a big hit because the script was so, Ted Talley wrote the script. And it was so concise and so accurate and... Um, and Jodie Foster was just wonderful to work with. She had no none of that movie star nonsense about it. She was a nice, ordinary, very nice woman. And we worked it well together. And um, then uh, the film was shown and uh, it came out. Um, <laughs> I discovered friends I never knew I had before. <laughs> what an impression. <laughs> but, you know, that's the life. And, uh, and that's what happened. And I, I was nominated and all that. I didn't expect to get that. I was up against Nick Nauti and De Niro and Robin Williams. So to my surprise, when I got that award, I thought, Gee, oh, my Moses. I didn't even have a speech to make. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so all this to me is is a mystery. So uh, that's why I, I think I built a sort of benign indifference to it all. And I don't mean to say indifference or... Uh, cynical, just kind of, oh, well, see, but that's it. Don't live with expectation. Yeah, yeah. State of total non-expectation and surprisingly enough, when you give up wanting things, things happen to you. And I think that's the secret that I might, might have stumbled on, you know, screw it, stop expecting things and things may work out or they may not. Well, and the things that made that character so just unforgettable his posture standing straight up the the lack of blinking the way he spoke i think it's interesting you know you say you knew how to play it right away but there are the things that one draws upon you who who is christopher fetz oh he's a teacher uh in london the london drama center he taught at rada and he was a stanislavski teacher and he was um Pretty aesthetic. He was pretty savage on students, but he was a brilliant, brilliant uh, intellectual. And now he's almost like a psychiatrist. It was called. It was called the Laban uh, theory of movement of psychological gesture, which Michael Chekhov talks about. So it's very Stanislavski-oriented and method and all that. So I studied with Christopher and his uh, partner Yat Mangrin, and um, I wasn't a good student. But years later, when Sun's Lamps came out. Uh, because they were always over my neck, you know, because they were hypercritical of everything. And students were scared of them. And Christopher was one of those guys. And I got a call from him. And he said, um, I saw you in San Francisco. He said, well done. He said, well done. <laughs> so we went out for dinner and the atom. And they were both pretty 
harsh critics of actors. And they paid me such a great compliment. I thought, well, my life is made. Because, you know, though you got your teachers over your back all the time, haunting you for the rest of your life. And so I was pleased with that. But by that time, I'd known a few, my way through the method and Stanislavski and all that. You know, I'm fairly well versed in it. I wouldn't say I'd have to sit in the corner vegetating, pretending I'm a tree or anything. But uh, I learned that. And for my method is that once you've filled your head with the thoughts of it, it was the same with lecture. I knew exactly what, because the language is there, it's there. I mean, I don't have backed it. And, uh, but something that you you added, I mean, you're very humble about it, but you, I mean, something like the the way his voice sounded, that was your contribution, right? The idea that he sounded like something else that you knew from cinema? Well, I wanted to make him like a machine, like how the computer in um, uh, 2001 because I knew that I said to John, John, just, how, how do you want to play it? We had dinner that night in London. I just felt like I like to play him like kind of disembodied, like good evening, Dave. He said, Oh my God, good evening, Dave. Have you thought about the strip, Dave? It's good evening, Clarice. You know, as he looked like it's maybe a good bag in the Jeep shoes. He's a computer, brilliant. And in the examination in the cage, no, what is he? Covet. That was Chris Ferris. What does he covet? No. Probing. And what he is, and I, I figured it out at that point, that he's her lover in a way, that he is a seducer, that in fact what he's doing is stripping away her mask. So he knows she's a better person than all this bullshit she's pretending to be so confident. He knows she's a vulnerable woman and she's got the courage to come into this monstrous situation with all these big FBI guys around her. And he admires her, but he's going to teach her some lessons. Tell me about the lambs, berries, quid pro quo. And he, what he does, he does an analysis on her, and he strips her off her mask. And he know, she, he, she knows he would never harm her, because he admires her. Mm-hmm. But he's her mentor. He said, you follow my tricks, and you'll have a better life. Now, he's locked in the prison, so his life is not so good. But she, so that much I knew. That's amazing. And I uh, just spoke with Jody for an interview about a week ago, and we were talking about the fact that you guys, it, it must not have been easy to film those scenes where you're talking to each other. It appears through the glass because you're looking into the camera. She's not there really when you're speaking. It's in super close up. I guess, was that a, a strange way of working for you? No, it was um, it was a long evening. I was uh, working till four o'clock in the morning. It was uh, no. Once you got to because Jody would be behind the camera, and I'd be behind the camera for her. And uh, it was it, and they, in those days they didn't have monitors. You know, the director was there with you. And Jonathan was very particular about that. He'd say, "Calista, one more take and another." We did about five takes in each, um, and I was game for that because it was it was easy. And I'd already got my game plan in way, and she was such a such a professional herself, and um, so it was easy. And I, and his his objective to use Stanislavski, his objective in that scene was to penetrate the mask and strip it down. Anyway, to make her a better. What he's doing, he's psychoanalyzing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just w- one little kind of trivial tidbit I'm curious about the uh the tongue thing was that scripted or was that you just in the moment 
I, now you can't now you can't get away from it. <laughs> I just got a big that came to me at the moment. So I've been some nice candy. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Jonathan said, Oh my god, you're so scared. I, I knew it scared people because I, I was very influenced by um I'd read the Bram Stoker's, you know, Dracula years before. Yes. And uh, when Count Dracula sees Jonathan Hardy, he cuts himself with a razor. And that to me, when I was a kid, I'd seen Bela Lugosi in film, and those images haunted me, as they do with kids, you know, darker. We all have other anxieties. And that one moment, he goes, it's that's the most terrifying moment of all. Is It's the nightmare that we all carry deep in us, inside us. There is a dark figure inside us that we know about. And if we are healthy, we confront it. We make friends with it because it's the shadow. If we don't, it'll take us apart, you know. It's amazing. And and you know what? I think people are, their mind is blown when they hear that. I think, I think somebody calculated it. You're in that movie for about 21 minutes. And yet it feels like you're there every minute. You won best actor, not best supporting actor. It was really an example of somebody making such an impression with the time they have in a movie. I don't think there's anything like it. Well, I'm very flattered to say that. Well, how was it? It was 21 minutes? 21 minutes. Holy moly, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I've never taken these facts into consideration. But yeah. yes, it was, um, yes, it was uh, it's a wonderful time. It was a wonderful part to play. And uh, I remember when I, when I saw the film in New York, uh, it, was a rough, it was sort of a final print, but not quite. And I sat with the, one of the producers, Ed Saxon, I think it was. We sat in the movie theater, and um, I think they'd added the score, or they were about to add the score to it. And I watched it, and I thought, oh, my God, this is a great movie. And um, Ed said, what do you think? I said, it's fantastic. And he said, I think it's a winner. He, think, he said, I think this is going to be bigger. And I sensed it would be. Also, but don't forget, the book was very popular. Because when I got to New York, um, on, for the first reading, I remember somebody saying to me, you, you're here to do Silence of the Lambs? I said, yeah, what part are you playing? I said, Hannibal Lecter. I said, oh. <laughs> I'd simply be saying, you know the book? Oh, my God, you haven't read the book? I said, I'm about to read it. And I read it. And I read and um, so I knew it was, um, as I say, you know, you, you have to have the confidence to know. It's not a question of ego. You just have to know precisely what you're going to do. And that's what I do. That's my trick of trade, I guess. So that period in your life, as you look back, I mean, that movie came out, I believe, in February of 91. More than a year later is when the Oscars happened. Came out on Valentine's Day. On Valentine's Day. That's right. 30 years. Yeah, we just had the 30th anniversary. Um, So comes out then more than a year later at the Oscars, it becomes only the third movie ever to win picture, director, actor, actress and screenplay. And at that point, I have to think, maybe even well before that, probably, your life was, and your career was probably never the same. And I guess I just wonder, I think at that point, you had already committed to do Howard's End. You may have been contemplating doing Dracula to play Van, Dr. Van Helsing, just to, maybe to, to show that you could do something totally different right after. I don't know. But just what do you remember about the moment when suddenly the world was at your fingertips. Well, you never really believe that. If you start believing that, if I started believing that, I'd be dead. You can't believe that. You know, that's what kills a lot of people. Because, but I don't mean kills, but, but you, you, you can't anticipate things like that. Life goes on and you, you know, wake up in the morning, you 
look at the shaved man and say, you're getting on. But, you know, life goes on, you survive and you make you do a couple of times. And I was, to my surprise, was called up by um, uh, someone representing Francis Ford Coppola. And uh, I think it was uh, Winona Ryder suggested me. Anyway, so uh, I was happening to come to, um, I think it was just after how it ended, I'm not sure. Or maybe how it ended was after. And um, yeah, anyway, so I came to Milan, I met Coppola and I, he was a very friendly guy. And uh, so we did that, Gary Oldman, or I'd never worked with him before, but I knew Gary, but didn't know him that well. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, that was at MGM a long time ago. 1991, it was September, I think, 1991. I think I'd done Howard's End before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think so. And I went back to England and, um, oh, I'd been nominated, that's right. And I was in, I was in, um, I was in Switzerland uh, doing a film with Charlie Chaplin, about Charlie Chaplin. Robert yeah. and Richard Attenborough was directing. And I was in, in the, and I was, and I was in the trailer one afternoon and, um, uh, having my lunch in Attenborough came in and said, you've been nominated for the Oscar. I couldn't believe it. Because 40 years ago, I'd seen Chaplin's film The Limelight. If yes. it was only then, you'd be like, get out, you're crazy. <laughs> so it's all very strange. And uh, I mean, I know I keep going on about this. Is, uh, I mean, I can't account for any of it. So see, yeah, I'm, I'm off the hook because I, I can't <laughs> credit for any of it. So that's why I'm benignly indifferent to it all. Well, I, I I do want to note that Howard's End was 1992, The Remains of the Day, 1993, both Merchant Ivory movies, both you and Emma Thompson, and both just tremendously acclaimed in a, for, for you giving performances that are could not be further from from Hannibal Lecter, right? I mean, these are kind of period piece mannered guys. Um I just wonder if you liked working in the kind of period piece costume drama that that type movie that Merchant Ivory, you know, is is forever associated with. Yeah, whatever they put you in, you know, you just stand there and put the clothes on. <laughs> years old. I remember on Howard's End, I had to wear a moustache and I didn't want to. And uh, <laughs> so um, the makeup said, would you try a moustache? And I put it on and suddenly I thought, ah, that's him. I'd become, because, you know, it's accidents. You put something on, Stanislavski talks about it, and uh, actors talk about it. You put on a pair of gloves or you put on, the, and something happens. It's like Gene Hackman when he's playing Popped Oil and um, uh, he, somebody gave him a hat or something and uh, he was drinking coffee and eating a donut during a break and suddenly it was, he became Popped Oil, you know, and, and those things happen. And uh, it's, it's a very strange process. Uh, you, you suddenly put something on and you think, good God. And I remember, you know, um, playing the father, for example, just in the dressing gown of the yeah. bathroom. And uh, things like that. Um, with Van Helsing or whatever they are, you know. Well, so with uh, Henry Wilcox for Howard's End, it was the mustache. With Stevens, the butler in Remains of the Day, was it the, was it the outfit? Was it something else there for that one? Well, you just don't speak too loud. <laughs> Stand still a lot. You don't know. It's um, yeah. You put that on, but it's no. It's uh, it's easy. It's it's not difficult. You put on the bunch of clothes that you have to wear for the character. Um, they may do something for you. They may make you feel whatever you feel like. Um, 
because I've never been dressed as a butler before in my life. But the one thing <laughs> I'm a butler. Right. There's no big deal about it. So uh, that was Remains of the Day in 93, which was the same year as your final collaboration with Attenborough with Shadowlands. And then comes the role that I believe you have said, you called it, quote, an act of madness, close quote, and quote, the hardest, toughest one I've done, close quote. And that was playing Richard Nixon in Nixon for Oliver Stone. And I'm just really curious because it seems like so many of these might have been demanding and challenging. What was it about Nixon that was so difficult for you? Everything, because he was an American president and I was so born in Wales. Yes. But Oliver was mad to cast me. I said, you're crazy. <laughs> I meant to meet him in uh, London. He was, I turned it down and he said, let's meet anyway. So I went for breakfast with him in the Hyde Park Hotel. It was a cold January morning, I thought. And I remember stopping. I thought, well, I can either work with this crazy man or can say, uh, have a respectable career for the rest of my life to Gibson and check off and all that, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I can meet. And I met Oliver. I said, I'm going to do it. He said, good. And then what is, what is great is Oliver's the most challenging director you can ever work with. Because he won't let you get away with them. And then he, he constantly pulls the carpets from underneath you because he likes to see you on set. He's a great, he's a real genius, I think. He's a brilliant director. And I had a great time with him. It was a tough role to play, but because, you know, I wanted to get the sound of the voice right. And um, I was surrounded by American actors. And uh, we did the reading and James Woods came over to me and said, great German accent. <laughs> but uh, no, it was a wonderful experience. And I, and I loved working with Oliver. And, um, oh, no, he was, he was great. And there were one it was a great, great, great performance. And I do want to come back to something you were just talking about where, do I want to be doing Ibsen? Do I want to be doing Shakespeare? One of my favorite quotes of yours that I came upon was, this was an interview with Playboy, I think 1994, quote, I don't like Shakespeare. I'd rather be in Malibu. <laughs> I, I think it's great. And I, you know what? The truth is, if, if you gave truth serum to most actors, they would probably say the same thing, right? <laughs> I, I admire people, you know, the people, it's wonderful actors like Ian McKellen and Judy Dench, people like that, and countless others. They go on stage night after night, you know, they enjoy it. But um, I don't know how they do it, but they've got the stamina. And uh, I, I, I can't do that. I, I, I mean, I remember I had the, the run of M. Butterfly for nine months, and I thought, I'm going to go crazy. And um, I knew an actor, Lionel Jeffries, is dead and gone now, but he said, this was like being, uh, after, uh, uh, I think it was Judy Dench, the best part is getting the phone call, inviting you to do it, after that sort of. <laughs> M. Butterfly was the last time you've done stage work, right? I did an adaptation of Chekhov's um, Uncle Vanya, uh, stage in Cardiff in Wales, and later Cloyd in North Wales, and I made it from as well. But um, yeah, that was the last. So... You played President Nixon in Nixon. Then you played President John Quincy Adams in Amistad and for Spielberg. And and I read a story that I have to just share with our listeners because I think it's a testament to your abilities. Just there's something about the way your mind works that you, I think, in like no time memorized the seven page speech that the cast and crew, I think they gave you an ovation or something at that when you did it. What You have a very specific technique for memorizing lines, right? Yeah, it's 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 pretty simple. I, I go over them, over them. It's um maybe it's obsessive, maybe that's why it, it works. Um I, it's like a kind of magic number. I go over 
a part of row 200 times, 300 times. I go over and over and over until I've absorbed and eaten or devoured the lines so much in my head that they become part of me. But once you have had that, you see, once you know somebody else's language, which is not mine, but it's, um, you know, whoever's written it, Ted Talley or Christopher Hampton, it's, it, it's his fiction. It's his, it's like, not mine. But I've absorbed all that stuff. Like, it's like taking, eating oatmeal in the morning. I'm not the oatmeal, but I take the oatmeal and, you know, it's the same as the day or I have whatever. And so you take in words and they, it sustains you. And it's like, it's like a diet of words. So they're in you. And the more you know it, the more you know it. And the more you relax, you become, and you go on set and think, right, I'm ready to go. Boom, boom. And you mark up your scripts, right? They're yeah. sort of yeah. hieroglyphics almost, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I wouldn't compare myself to Muhammad Ali, but just like Muhammad Ali or you know, Mike Tyson doing 300,000 press-ups. You know, it's dancing. It's like a great dancer. Um, you've got to know your steps. You can't dance unless you know. It's like a great singer, Pavarotti or whoever. You know, you, you have to, not that I'm any near that, but that's a technique. You cannot go by any other means. There's no way through it. Um, you think you, if anyone who thinks they can, they're fools. They're stupid because you can't do it. So you have to know exactly what you're going to do. And then you can adapt. You can rope it up. You can do, you know, you can dance around the ring. But you, you can improvise within the structure. And that's what makes it so liberating. But you have to then not take yourself too seriously. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's really interesting, and I think one of your most underrated or underappreciated performances was in Proof. I don't know if it wasn't distributed well or or what, but I think it's one that you're also proud of, right? It, it was oh, it's pretty good, good as Faltro, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, yeah. I think as the professor. Um, anyway, just any any thoughts you have on that? Oh, I had a wonderful. It's a long time ago. It's nine and hundreds of years ago. That was like 2005, I think. That's right. It was in Chicago. Yes, that's right. Gwyneth was wonderful to work with, and uh, uh, John Madden. Um, It was, uh, well, again, I had a lot of limestone, and I was confident in that. I knew what I was doing and knew what I was going to do. And um, I didn't know, know, I saw the film, but I didn't know if it was was rated at all. Um, Yeah, it was one I enjoyed. It's, you know, you can say we're proud of them. It's, I, I just look at them. Did I enjoy them? I enjoyed King Lear recently. And the director was Ian McKellen, a wonderful actor. Uh, all big surprises, you know, to get work with people like, like, uh, see Ian McKellen and, uh, and doing the two popes with uh, Jonathan Price. You know, I had to learn Latin and Italian. <laughs> well, that's the one that I, I, I have to ask you about next because I thought that was the best movie of whatever it was, 2018. You guys were unbelievably good together. And it, it, it was just fascinating to watch every little, uh, kind of twitch and mannerism that you gave Pope Benedict. And I, I just wonder, I know you say you stick to the script, but was there something there where you, did you look at footage of Benedict? Did you, was there other things because you nailed that one? I thought that's as good as anything you've done. I saw bits of the, the Pope on the balcony when he receives the blessing on that. And you know that you imitate that look and the looks and gestures, as I did with Nixon. I watched Nixon's uh, farewell speech to the White House, many of his speeches over and over and over until you get this sense of it. But with that, and then with Jonathan, who's a different kind of actor to me, and uh, I didn't know Jonathan at all well. 
we'd met, you know, a few times. But he was uh, he was terrific. Now he he likes to he I, I like to learn it all. He he just comes in as a chance, and that he was so easy to work with. And whatever his method is, it's different to mine. But we seemed to coalesce and work together, and we had a nice joke together because he was number one on the call sheet. <laughs> You used to call me number two. I said, yeah, but I'm sir number two. <laughs> so we had a lot of fun. You've got to have that. If you don't have fun with it, you're dead. And you can't. You've got to have fun with it. Yeah. That is a fantastic one. And then to follow that with the father, which I think you've said, uh, here, here's an interesting quote to just get us into the father. Quote, two scripts had an immediate impact on me. One was Silence of the Lambs. The other was the father, close quote. Was it? Ju- it was just something that you read it and you knew I've got to play this guy. Yeah, because it's very simply written, very direct, very simple and concise. And that's the art of great screenplay writing. Chris Hamden's one of those. And I'm glad he's been nominated uh, for. Uh, but, uh, and and uh, what's his name? Um, Florian Zell. I'm just going to meet Florian in a few minutes. So I've got a mm. first time director. It's extraordinary. And it was, it was so easy, it was so simple. We had a lot of fun. No, I mustn't take anything too seriously. Yes. Uh, had you ever had to play a character before who has to convey such a range of emotions. One minute he's charming, the next minute he's abusive. One minute he's scared, the next minute he's resigned. But you just follow the course of the script, the rule. Yeah. Do you feel that with the passage of time, you know, do you continue to get better as an actor? I think so. you're doing some of the best work ever the last two movies, but how do you feel about it? What's left to, what's left to achieve at this point? Well, I got a couple of films coming up and, uh, if we ever get out of this pandemic, I'm sure we will. Um, yeah, I, I just love to work, you know, and uh, I like to have a laugh with it. I like to have a lot of fun with it, and I love doing it. It's a, it's a, it beats working. I'll tell you, uh, it's called <laughs> great Robert Mitchell. He said, why do you act in films? Sure beats work, he said. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't thank you enough for all the, all the great entertainment and for doing this, and just uh, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.